0: You're listening to Tulsa Bible Church's Sermon Podcast, as Pastor Jared teaches on the church in the Middle Ages. If you'd like more information, visit us at tulsabible.org. How many of you guys know a lot about the Crusades in the Middle Ages? Not not a whole lot of takers. I wouldn't have raised my hand there either. And so I went to seminary and started studying this a little bit deeper. How many of your depth of the Crusades goes about as far as this guy right here? Everything you know about the Middle Ages kind of goes back to Robin Hood, men in tights, in fact. Um, There's not, you know, there's just not a whole lot that the church talks about in the Middle Ages, uh, especially the Crusades. It's kind of this just this ugly period of church history that we would rather really just pass over. Uh, some of us prefer the King Richard, uh, King Richard, the lion-hearted approach to the Crusades. He was a big part of that. Uh, we're gonna learn a little bit about the Knights in the Crusades and the Knights Templar and how Christianity informed their conduct and who they were. You guys know who this guy is, right? This is a Grail Knight. Uh, from Indiana Jones, and he was, Indy suggested that he was probably born about 1066 AD in the movie, if you need to go back and and watch that and refresh a little bit about uh, what you understand. How many of you heard of of the Knights Templar before? The Knights of the Temple, and what Temple are they referring to with the Knights Templar? The Temple in Jerusalem, the Knights that were Uh, took over the city of Jerusalem, protected it, and stayed there and and proclaimed that it was for Christ and for his kingdom. The knights at the temple were stationed at the temple in Jerusalem. They wore white robes with a red cross on it. There was also a a group of knights called the Hospitallers. Hospitallers wore a different garb. They were the Knights of St. John. They wore black robes with a white cross on it. The guys that you didn't want to cross if you were traveling through the, the in and around the area of the Middle East during this time were the Teutonic knights. They wore white robes with a black cross. They were a group of German knights that were especially proficient in protection and strength. They needed about 500 of them to guard a castle, and that's exactly what they did. Um, these guys were knights, but they were also monks Okay, so they would dismember you in a heartbeat and then they'd go back and read Psalms and thank the Lord and, and pray for you. And, and they really, um, they thought that what they were doing for the Crusades was a service to God, that it actually drew them closer to God. And even though, even though they were known for their brutality, they were also known for their uh, study and meditation of God's word and their times of prayer. They were military monks. The reason why we don't hear much about the Crusades in the church today is because it's a really sad part of church history. Uh, For 250 years, the church fought and battled for territory uh, of the Holy Lands, and in Israel and and around the area of Jerusalem. And for 250 years, they got absolutely nothing out of it. Maybe a couple Gothic churches that were built on sites. If you go to Israel today, you can you can see that. But really, nothing uh, nothing came out of that whole period except for a lot of bloodshed and a lot of death. And it's a it's a difficult time. It was a hot summer day. The year was 1054 A.D. A service was about to start in Istanbul. At that time, it was the city of Constantinople and the new Rome in the Eastern Empire, the Byzantine Empire of the church. And there was a a service that was going to happen at this place, the Hagia Sophia, the Church of Holy Wisdom that was dedicated to the second person of the Trinity, to Jesus Christ himself who embodied holy wisdom. First built by Constantine, later renovated by Justinian, Emperor Justinian, who said when he had renovated the Hagia Sophia that he has outdone Solomon with his building of this church. People quipped that the dome was hung by a golden chain from heaven, and that it was a link rising from the finite to the infinite above, a link from the creator to the created below. First, the Hagia Sophia was an Eastern Orthodox Church, and it remained that way nearly for a thousand years in the Byzantine Empire, one of the longest empires that the world has ever seen. Uh, Second, it was turned into a mosque when the Ottoman Turks took it over in 1453. And they took over Constantine at that time, renamed it Istanbul. Turks had it as a mosque for 500 years. Third, it turned into a museum in the year 1935. That lasted for about 100 years. And then just recently here, in the year 2020, the Muslims turned it back into a mosque once again. The Hagia Sophia was said to change the history of architecture. It is the epitome of Byzantine architecture and the Byzantine Empire itself recognized by the pendentive dome on the top of it. On that summer day on a service, 1054 AD, the service was about to begin. A cardinal named Humbert walked into the Hagia Sophia with two other representatives from Rome. They were emissaries. They entered and they made their way to the sanctuary not to pray, but to deliver something, a, a piece of paper. It was called a bull, a papal bull an official letter from the papacy in Rome. They placed the bull, the official document of the papacy, on the altar, and as they left, the Cardinal shook the dust off of his feet, proclaiming, let God look and judge upon what is happening here in the Eastern Empire, the Byzantine Empire. And with that action, the Catholic Church in the West officially separated, split, from the Church in the East, and they would never come together again in history, as much as the Crusades desired for that to happen. Um, Most of the time, Christians can discover what you believe by asking three questions. How am I saved? What gets me to everlasting life with Jesus? Number two, what is the church? Number three, where does authority in the church reside? Catholics and Protestants disagree on all the answers, every single answer to those three questions. And that's why we protested against the authorities of the Catholic Church. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, they're not even asking the same questions. They ask a completely different set of questions. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, it's not merely the answers that are different, it's the questions that are different altogether. So if you came to an Eastern Orthodox Church today, and you can go to these, uh, even here in Tulsa, There's an Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, If you went to an Eastern Orthodox Church today, you would walk in, and the first thing that you would walk into is, it's called a nave, and you would see something on the wall in front of you called an iconostasis. It's a wall of paintings that depict the entrance into the sanctuary before the service would begin. You would kiss the icons before you enter and have your seat among the congregation in the church. Uh, The great theme of Orthodox theology is the incarnation of the Son of God. God became man and dwelled with us. Um, The icons for the Eastern Church are not simply great paintings by great artists. The icons depict something much deeper and greater and richer than that. The Eastern Church believe that they are a window into the heavenly realm. It is the avenue by which we from earth can get a glance of heaven above. And the great again, the great theme of, of Eastern Orthodoxy is the incarnation of God, but also the recreation of man. Because man is created in the image of God. Man is the icon of God. And so we are accustomed to thinking about sin. We are more informed by a Western Christianity than Eastern Christianity. We believe that sin basically... Creates a, a relationship, a legal relationship, either with God or apart from God. Sin does not first violate a legal relationship in the Eastern Church, as we're accustomed to understand it. God came to restore the icon, to restore the image of God. Sin is any reduction of the image of God in man. When you sin, the icon is damaged. It's not as full, it's not as complete as it could be. Salvation is a completion or a perfection of the image of God. So when one is saved, they become the perfect image of God. God came to restore the icon, to restore the image. The church is not a formal institution. The the church is a mystical body of Christ. And in the church, man is remade, a process Step by step, day by day, week by week, they are being transformed into the image of God until one day they can join the fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The process is called theosis in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, And they don't believe that God is going to become man. Um, They just believe that man gets to partake of the fellowship of God when they become closer and closer into the image of God. Uh, Athanasius, one of the great Eastern Orthodox leaders, said Jesus came to man so that man could come to God. That's the process of theosis, that's what the Eastern ch- Church believed. Um, there arose a great controversy, a great differences, church fights, church splits, between the Western Church of Rome and the Eastern Church of the Byzantine Empire. In the West, they thought that the icons might slip into idolatry. That the icons, in fact, were beginning to be venerated by people. And for them, that was a sin of the gravest error, according to the Bible. They preferred, in the West, images of the cross, the Bible, and the Lord's Supper. And that was it. In the East, they had images of everything. And so out of that, the iconoclasts were born. The icon icon breakers. Who physically wanted to come in and destroy this, this sinful pattern in the Eastern Church and stop the icons from perpetuating in the church? There was other theological differences between the Eastern and Western Church. Does the spirit proceed from the Father, or does the spirit proceed from the Father and the son together? In great statements that were pronounced by early church creeds. Uh, they had Greek services in the East. We had Latin services in the West. They had Greek creeds in the East. Everything in the the West was again Latin. They read from a Greek Bible because that was the Bible of the New Testament, and the Eastern Church was absolutely 100% right in that. You guys are reading, just as I am, from an English Bible today. Those come from Greek translations of the original manuscripts. Um, Finally, in 787 A.D., 350 bishops assembled at a very common place known as Nicaea and they pronounced a declaration on the iconoclast and on the icon controversy in the eastern church and what they declared was that it's okay to use icons in the service of worship as long as those icons aren't venerated or aren't worshipped themselves as icons but that God is still worshipped and God alone. Today Only half of Greece and Cyprus would be considered Eastern Orthodox in their theology. Uh, But there was a very narrow corridor that made its way to the north. So everything in the blue is the Eastern Orthodox Church early on here. Everything in the orange is the Western Church. And up here was a little corridor that went to the north, into the regions of Bulgaria and into the regions of Russia. That we know of today. Um, A man by the name of Boris, King of Bulgaria, was converted by an Eastern Orthodox believer in the ninth century. Another man who was a grand prince, his name was Vladimir. Guess where he's from? Russia. He was converted in the 10th century. uh, In the city of Kiev, right now, you will find many Eastern Orthodox churches as a celebrated religion of their culture. Uh, Both men had sent envoys to Constantinople to a service at the Hagia Sophia. And here's what they came back and they reported at that time. They said, We know not whether we were in heaven or on earth, for surely there is no such beauty anywhere upon the earth. We cannot describe it to you. Only we know that God dwells there among men and their service surpasses that of all other places. For we cannot forget the beauty that they saw in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Now there are three major divisions of Christianity. Now there's three major Romes in Christianity. You've got the old Rome, the city of Rome, home of the Roman Empire and the Roman papacy. You have a new Rome, Rome number two in the east, it was Constantinople, Constantine's Rome. But there was a third Rome, a Rome of, of Moscow, where you will see, is that building, anybody? Big building on the, let's see, your left? You guys know what that is from, probably if you've seen James Bond movies recently, it's the Kremlin, right? Over here is the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, St. Basil of Caesarea, it was named after. Emperor has a a familiar title at the Third Rome in Moscow. Guess what they decided to call him? They began to call him a Tsar. Comes from an old Roman word, Caesar. He was the Caesar in Moscow uh, for the Eastern Orthodox Church. Do you remember um, feudalism, remember knights and lords and ladies, chivalry, all these great things? Have you guys seen the new celebration that the NFL guys are doing, this whole thing? You know what they're doing, right? They're putting their sword back in their sheath when they make a big play or a tackle. Uh, They're taking that right from the Knights Templar, I think. Um, The Roman papacy was dwindling in power in the West. In 1073, Gregory VII became a new pope. And as I was saying last week as we finished, Gregory Seventh had enough of the pope and the clergy and the religious leaders bowing to the whims of the politicians and the kings. The popes were in, in the hands of the kings. Whatever the king wanted the religious establishment to do, they would pay them off, and therefore they would do it through a custom called um, investiture that we had mentioned. Gregory VII was done with investiture. He, he was done of being a pawn in the hands of the king. And so he said to all of his officials and those who were close by and the religious leaders at the time, he said that this is a great sin of simony and it needs to stop in the church. If you found Acts chapter 8, I want you to look down at verse 18. Acts 8 verse 18. It says this Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying of hands of the apostles, he offered them money. And remember, in the book of Acts, you need to be very, very careful about establishing your doctrine from the book of Acts. The book of Acts is progressive, it's a transitional book. The book of Acts takes us from the birth of the church, Acts chapter 2, to Paul in Rome at the end of his life, where he's going to be beheaded. For his faith. You have lots of churches being planted at the beginning of Acts. You don't have a mention of elders and deacons in Acts chapter 6. By the end of Acts, you have a mention of the elders in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. It's very transitional. The Holy Spirit comes in different ways throughout the book of Acts. And so you'd be hard-pressed to find one ironclad model of how that happens until you get to later New Testament books like 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians to talk to us a little bit more about the definitive way that the Holy Spirit works through the Gentiles and through the rest of the church. Acts 8, 18 and 19, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands, the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands will receive the Holy Spirit. Simon tried to purchase the Holy Spirit with money. You can't manipulate God like that. That is why they call it simony. Sin is named after him. Verse 20, Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Gregory the Seventh had enough of the church proclaiming the gift of God through money. He claimed an unprecedented new power for the papacy, and he basically told the church that no longer would they practice investiture, no longer was this going to happen while he was around. The land doesn't belong to the king. Everything belongs to the king of kings and to the lord of lords. And so the church doesn't bow to any, any king, any politician, or any earthly official. Uh, he pro- prohibited the practice of investiture, and then he excommunicated anybody else who wanted to practice it. You can no longer be a part of the Holy Roman church, which was essentially a declaration of war against the kings who put the popes in their hands. And all came to a head when King Henry IV put his own man into power. Henri, a king from a Frankish kingdom united with the Roman Empire. He didn't go to the pope first. He didn't go to Gregory VII first. He put his own man in power and he sideswiped the papacy. Gregory VII said, listen, Henry IV, we've got to have a discussion. You're out of line. I want you to come to Rome. I want you to come to Italy because we need to talk about it. Henry IV said, sure, I'll come to Italy. But first, he set up a a group of German um, bishops that declared Gregory a usurper. That Gregory should have never been the pope in the first place. And so in return, Gregory called Henry IV and excommunicated him. From the church. And there was this big rivalry between the two. A revolt of German nobles came to the forefront, and Henry IV was in trouble. He had no other option but to go to the papacy, to go to Gregory VII and plea for help. And January of 1077 AD at Carnosa in the Alps of Italy, if you can answer this question, you know your church history really, really well. 1077 at Carnossa in the Alps of Italy, what happened? Henry IV came back after marching uh, south to Italy to stand before the Pope. He marched in the snow for three days, and he begged and he pleaded for mercy from from Pope Henry or from Pope Gregory the Seventh. And after three days, after he had begged enough in the snow, finally, the Pope uh, remitted his sins. Instead, we loosened the chains of anathema and received into the lap of the Holy Mother Church once again. Henry Fourth. Historians call it the walk to Carnosa. You guys remember when there used to be a Whataburger right back here? Here's what we call it, the walk of shame. Um, whenever anybody on our staff needed to get a lunch really quick, we would go to Whataburger and we always call it the walk of shame. All right. You guys don't have anything to eat, anything healthy to eat? Here you go. Go across the street. Um, What Gregory instituted was a a walk of shame for the king. Uh, He knew that he needed the papacy in order to protect his kingdom, protect his power, and protect his authority. And with that action right there at Carnosa, the church began to develop a zenith of power that it would never, ever, ever see again. Uh, The pope became his own man. Instead of the king directing the pope, now it was the opposite way around. The pope directed the kings, and there was nothing that they could do apart from the pope's blessing. During the 12th and 13th centuries, the papacy made it commendable, and a commendable effort, to establish an earthly utopia— the Pope's government wasn't a temporary earthly government. It was an eternal Christ's kingdom government. The Pope ruled universally over all things. It was Gregory VII who eventually said through the pages of history, "...the successor of Peter, the Pope, the Roman Pope, is the vicar of Christ. He is established as a mediator between God and man, below God but beyond man, less than God but more than man." Who shall judge all and be judged by no one? Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. The Pope had two primary weapons to wield his authority. Number one was excommunication. Here's what Bruce Shelley says in his church history book. After a bishop read the solemn sentence of excommunication to an individual, the bell rang as for a funeral, a book was closed, and a candle was extinguished, all to symbolize the cutting off of the guilty sinner before the Holy Roman Mother Church. The other instrument that they used, not only excommunication, it was called an interdict. Excommunication was meant for an individual. An interdict was meant for an entire nation or state. And now you could actually excommunicate an entire people group, an entire country, an entire political state. And the church had the power to do it. Pope Innocent III used the interdict 85 times in his lifetime to excommunicate certain states. This is, this is not good. Brad, this is not good for the church, okay? Um, when you see Brad, Scott Susong, or me come up here and we start proclaiming excommunication interdicts on states and groups of people, Hal, just do something about that, okay? Somebody come up, turn the microphone off, you know, reestablish order back at the Bible Church. During this time, a new religion began to spread in an old empire. In AD 570, a man by the name of Muhammad was born. Uh, Muhammad gave his life to contemplation, to meditation, and to prayer, to God above, and to silence. And the story goes that Muhammad was in a cave meditating and praying to his God. And he heard a word from his God. And it said in Arabic, recite, recite, recite. And so Muhammad recited what God said, which is the word for Koran in Arabic. And he penned the Koran. Many people rejected the initial claims of Muhammad. Muhammad did not gain a big following at first. It was only after many military victories that he became the prominent person that he was in the Islamic faith. Uh, He unexpectedly died in 632 AD without naming a successor. And so some people said uh, immediately the followers of Muhammad should name a successor right away. They should name a caliphate. That's a group of people known as the Sunnis. Another group of Muslims said that Yes, he should name a caliphate. Yes, they should name a successor. But it needs to be in the bloodline of Muhammad himself. Those group of people would be known as the Shiites. All right? Uh, In the West, we've been trying to forget that the Crusades happened for over 700 years. But here's the reality. It only took 100 years of Muhammad's influence in the Islamic faith to capture 50% of all Christians in the world. Does that make sense? Capture is probably not the right word. 50% of all Christians lived in an Islamic state in the first hundred years after Muhammad. And that's why it is uh, so influential. The spread of it happened very fast and it it was very big as it spread. The church, of course, wanted to protect the Holy Land from the hands of Islam. It all started in 1095. Emperor Alexius I was sitting in the Eastern Empire of Constantinople. He appealed to Pope, the Pope at the time, who was Urban II. And Urban II, history says, we don't don't know exactly what Urban II said in this passionate plea for Crusaders. There's six versions of it that you can go and read, and you can get English translations of it. Uh, But here's what we do know. We do know it was one of the most influential speeches of all time throughout the Middle Ages. It changed history. One pope made a call to arms for the Crusades, and he rose up hundreds of thousands to flee and and to fight in the Holy Land. We do know a new cry was born for the church, Deus volt. God wills it. God wills it that we would protect the Holy Land. From Muslim and Islamic invasion. The word crusade means to take up the cross. And so on the way to Jerusalem, the knights wore a red cross on the front of their chest. As they walked to Jerusalem, as they walked away from Jerusalem back home, they wore the cross on their back instead. The crusades were a new type of war. It was a holy war. And for 250 years, seven to eight crusades were fought, depending on how you number them. The first of the Crusades was the only one that was somewhat successful, if you can, if you can say that. The first of Crusades, uh, 5,000 soldiers were sent to take back Jerusalem, and that's exactly what they did. They overcame the Turks, they captured the holy city of Jerusalem, and an account reads, it was necessary to pick one's way over the bodies of men and horses. These were small matters compared to what happened at the Temple of Solomon, where, and I quote, men rode in blood up to their knees in bridle reins, defending Jerusalem from the Muslims. Muslims fought to take Jerusalem back, which compelled Bernard of Clairvaux to call for a second crusade. Muslims fought back and took Jerusalem. The second crusade was another attempt to get Jerusalem back. That war achieved absolutely nothing. After two years, it simply melted away in bloodshed of the crusaders mostly, but also of a lot of Muslim fighters as well. By 1187, Saladin, a sultan of Egypt and Syria, united the Muslims under his leadership. And the church again sent men to get Jerusalem back. This is one of the, the more famous crusades. The third crusade was where we hear of Richard, Richard the Lionhearted, uh, Frederick of Barbosa in Germany, King, King Philip of France was big in the Third Crusade. Finally, it was, it was Richard, uh, the Lionhearted, and Saladin who agreed on a three-year truce. Uh, they established a peace, a peace treaty, and they weren't going to fight over Jerusalem at that time. The Fourth Crusade revealed the harsh reality of the Crusades. Pope Innocent III attempted to revive the crusading spirit. Uh, He wanted to take all the land and the territory for himself. few knights actually responded to Innocent III's plea for more fighters. They couldn't afford the outrageous shipping costs that were controlled by a group of people known as the Venetians. The Venetians knew that they could make a whole lot of money if they shipped knights to Jerusalem and their supplies. And so if they were going to go to Jerusalem they had to go through the Venetians. The Venetians coerced the crusading knights to capture a town of Zara on the on the coast of the Ad- Adriatic Sea, Adriatic Sea. And so they did and they won that town. And then they pressured the knights to fight for Constantinople and they won the town of Constantinople. It was constantly shifting between the Crusaders and the Turks, the Crusaders and the Turks. Uh, Research the Battle of Vienna. You will read over and over again in the Battle of Constantinople, how many of them there were throughout history. Many, many battles through through history. Uh, They won Constantinople. Once Constantinople was won to the Crusaders, they conveniently forgot about Jerusalem. They just stayed in Constantinople because it was such a great city with uh, Hagia Sophia. The results of the Crusades? Not much. Um, some victories were won. For some time, the church in Jerusalem was, was won over to uh, Western Christian influence and even Eastern Christian influence. At the end of the day, even Jerusalem and the territory of Israel was lost. Uh, if the Crusades were fought to stop the advance of Islam, that didn't happen. Unsuccessful. If the Crusades were fought for Constantinople, that didn't happen. Unsuccessful again. If the Crusades were fought for Jerusalem, that didn't happen either. So what was the benefit of the Crusades? It was an attempt by the church to continue the conquering legacy of Charlemagne and build his frankish roman empire over everyone and everything the church envisioned unity between the western church and the eastern church and they sent the crusaders to make sure that was going to happen it never ever happened the popes fought for it they entered a temporal battle for this physical world a battle that they should have never taken up in the first place it is a, a gory and bloody stain on the history, especially of the Western Church. I want you to turn to John chapter four, verse twenty-three. John four, turn back from Acts. Um, Get back up to verse 20. John 4 verse 20. It's the famous account of the woman at the well here. And it says, "Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship." Jesus said to her, "Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father." You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. Salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, verse 23, and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Early church made a a grave mistake They wanted to specifically locate true worship to the Father through Christ by the Holy Spirit in a geographical location. Jesus redefined the geographical location of the temple. Jesus said he is the temple. Jesus said the church is the temple. We are all stones being put together, fitted together. For God's purposes and ultimately for His glory. The Crusades were an attempt to take a, a location, a physical location, and make it into the central place of worship when even Jesus said over a thousand years ago, that's not true worship. True worship is in the Spirit and in truth. I want you to turn back again to Matthew chapter 11. Turn to Matthew 11. And look at verse 12. Matthew 11, verse 12. Uh, verse 11. Matthew 11:11. 11, 11. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist." Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, until the Crusades, until years after this was written, just keep on going. From the years until John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and violent men try to take it by force. Jesus was appealing for a much different approach to the kingdom of heaven, one that wouldn't come forcefully one that would come spiritually through the death and resurrection of Christ and through the church for the centuries and for the ages to come. We can establish a lot of really good theology about the church based on these passages in John 4 and Matthew chapter 11. We can establish a lot of good theology based on what's happened through church history. We know that the church is a people. It's not a place. We know that true worship is to the Father, through the Spirit, by the, by the Son, through the Spirit. Um, these are things that take place outside of a, a location. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triunity of God allow us to worship to the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit, wherever we are and whatever we are doing. There is never a time in your life where you are not worshiping. You are always worshiping someone or something. The question before you is what, at any specific moment in time, has control of your heart? And that, in fact, is what you are worshiping. But we worship God apart from the confines of a geographical location. The church is a people, it's not a physical building. God has given us the blessings of a place to meet to assemble, to gather together, to worship, to make disciples as a tool for ministry, a wonderful tool for ministry, that can bring us together corporately, where we can celebrate, where we can sing to God, we can fellowship with one another, we can love one another, we can use our spiritual gifts in ways that otherwise we wouldn't be able to use our spiritual gifts. We can hear the word of God correctly taught, we can take the Lord's Supper, we can do baptisms that reflect a sign of the spiritual transformation that's happened on the hearts of individuals, but we are not confined to a physical, geographical place in our worship. We are called to worship God everywhere at all times and in all things. The early church, the Western church, made a grave, grave mistake. They built cathedrals that were attempting to meet God in the heavens above. Half of those cathedrals fell down a few times before they were built again to stand for the years that they have. We'll talk about that next week. A lot of things in church history that we can glean from. One of the things that I always want us to remember here at Tulsa Bible Church you don't come to worship once a week in your spiritual life, you are worshiping all the time in your spiritual life. We come once a week on Sundays, the day that remembers the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave, together to worship corporately. At every other time we are worshiping in the things that we say, the things that we do, the places that we go, the people that we are with. We can actually be a part of worshiping, apart from presence at the church right here in Tulsa and we, our hearts are fully focused and given completely to the Lord, we can actually worship in spirit and in truth uh, through the Holy Spirit that connects us, a vital connection to God the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. And so we need to hold things loosely here at Tulsa Bible Church. We need to make sure that uh, the battles that we fight are the battles for eternity, the eternal kingdom of God not trying to build any temporary kingdom here on earth that's going to go up with the rest of it before the Lord returns in glory. We need to be about building the church, which is reaching people, ministering, evangelizing, sharing the gospel, and welcoming them to a church family, a spiritual organism of God that's been given to us for our growth and development so that we can be a part of making disciples with other people, yes, inside the walls of your home and local church, but also outside of those walls as we gather together over breakfast at office places and read scriptures together, encourage one another, and pray for one another. That's what the church is. That's what the church does. And when we get caught up in the earthliness of the church, God has a way of taking those things away. As idols, of shattering them before they shatter us. And that's the story of the Middle Ages, the cathedrals and the churches of the Middle Ages. They became idols for the church, they became obsessed with them. And so God slowly, meticulously took them away. We can learn a lot from it. If this is your first time here and you're a new believer, here's what I want you to know this is not a normal Sunday. Uh, for us at Tulsa Bible Church. Uh, Typically, we're accustomed to going through a passage of Scripture, reading it, uh, showing how all these passages of Scripture lead to the personal work of Jesus Christ. And for you, there's one thing that I want to tell you. Uh, There is two options for you at all times and all places. You are either one who worships the Father through the Son by the Spirit in truth or you are worshiping someone or something else. If you are worshiping someone or something else, you are putting a glory that belongs to the God alone above and to something that is temporary and earthly, and it will never fulfill you. If you are worshiping the one true God above, you are fulfilled and satisfied in who he is and what he's done for us through Jesus Christ. He sent His only Son, Jesus, to die on a cross for your sins, that believing in Him, you might have life in His name. Three days later, after the cross of Calvary, He rose again from the grave, proclaiming that He has overcome sin and death. And your part to be a partaker in forgiveness, in a relationship with God, is simply to place your faith in Jesus, to believe that you need salvation, you need forgiveness of your sins. If you're here today and you're hearing that message, which is the gospel, we would love to talk to you more about that. Elders are going to be up here under the screens after the service. Please come and talk to us, and we'd love to pray with you and hear more about that. If you're here and you've been in the church at TBC for a while, I want you to come back and continue to learn how history can inform what we are doing in this thing called the church in ecclesiology. Uh, how we can worship and set our hearts rightly based on the things that have happened in the past that can inform us. Um, and we want you to come back next week. We're going to talk about humanism, scholasticism. We're going to talk about the, uh, the rise of what became the morning stars of the Reformation. And the last Sunday in October, uh, Scott Susong is going to come up. He's going to tell us a lot about a guy by the name of Huss, a lot about a guy by the name of Wycliffe, And how these guys informed and really were a major part of bringing us the the Protestant Reformation. Let's pray. You've been listening to Tulsa Bible Church's Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Until next time.